Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, it's been more than two years since Carrington Jawan Fry was killed in a Georgia prison. His mother, Jennifer Bradley, still awaits answers from state officials. And we first spoke with her back in 2020, and Ms. Bradley joins us again on the program. And coming up later on Closer Look. What I like about, about any journal is that you can watch yourself develop. And you can also, you know, really get to know your fears you know, and what's holding you back? What's keeping you silent when you really know you need to speak? What is that? Pulitzer Prize winning author Alice Walker talks about her latest. It's called Gathering Blossoms Under Fire, the journals of Alice Walker, edited by the late Valerie Boyd. It has entries from more than 60 journals spanning decades of Walker's personal writings. Now, all that's coming up. But first, this news. Georgia's elections will face scrutiny in federal court starting today. It's the first day of a trial for one of Georgia's most high-profile voting cases in a decade. As we hear from our politics reporter, Sam Greenglass. This is a case filed more than three years ago by Fair Fight Action. That's the voting rights group Stacey Abrams founded after her 2018 campaign for governor. Lawyers for Fair Fight sued state election officials, including the Secretary of State, saying they made it harder for people to vote in 2018 and 2020, especially black voters. The court will consider exact match requirements for voter registration and the state's handling of voter lists and absentee ballots. Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger called the suit a political stunt. The state already got the judge to toss many of Fair Fight's original claims. A ruling isn't expected until this summer, so any changes mandated by the court wouldn't take effect before the May primaries. Sam Greenglass, WABE News. In other news, Georgia faith leaders and voting advocacy organizations say they'll be rallying tomorrow morning outside the King Center in the old Fourth Ward neighborhood, as we hear from Lily Oppenheimer. The rally marks a combined push for voter education ahead of this year's November election, and organizers say the U.S. Senate's inability to pass key voting rights bills has only strengthened their resolve. The Freedom to Vote and the John Lewis Voting Advancement Act would have expanded access at the ballot box including establishing Election Day as a federal holiday. They would have also reversed many provisions in the elections overhaul that Georgia Republicans passed last year, which critics say created barriers to voting, especially for people of color, and included cutting 24-7 absentee dropbox access. 
Lily Oppenheimer, WABE News. And the Chattahoochee River National Recreation Area is planning changes to its 65 miles of trails. It's the first time there's been a comprehensive review like this since the Poplar Park was created in the, like, in the late 1970s, as we hear from Molly Samuel. Most of the trails in the National Recreation Area weren't actually created by the National Park Service. Most of our trails have been inherited from the property that became part of the National Park, social trails or old roadbeds. Ann Honius is the superintendent of the recreation area. By social trails, she means just places that people walk over and over again until a trail forms itself. It's not always the easiest way to hike. It might be straight up a hill, straight down a hill, very curvy. On the Vickery Creek Trail in Roswell, she points out a path coming down a steep hill that's getting washed out by water. And see the path that the rain came down and how it's eroding as the trail goes uphill. This adds up to a trail system that is difficult to maintain and can be unsafe in spots. And it's also not necessarily great for the environment. So for the past few years, the park and its partners have been working on a review of the trails in the 15 units making up the National Recreation Area, stretching from Lake Lanier to just inside the perimeter. They're proposing changes to existing trails, adding new ones and more connections to other city and regional parks. Here at Vickery Creek, they'll close the parking lot we use, though there will still be other ways in. Honia says it's a big project, but it's not happening overnight. I want to point out that this plan is not going to be all done at once. We're thinking this is 20 years to implement. The Park Service is taking written comments from the public on the plan until the end of this month. Molly Samuel, WABE News. And speaking of trails and nature and all of that, Georgia's Wildlife Agency is asking residents to report sightings of a large invasive lizard that can pose a threat to native species. The Department of Natural Resources is trying to locate and remove South American tegus from Georgia before the lizards can multiply. Now, don't hurt the lizard. You see it, just call them. And I ask y'all to round them up. The black and white lizard can grow up to four feet long and weigh 10 pounds. The only known wild population of tegus in the state has been found in southeast Georgia. They're commonly kept as pets. I don't know why, but according to Closer Look producer Daniel Razel, the lizards are highly intelligent and can be housebroken. Wild populations have been found in South Carolina and Florida. This is just my own personal opinion. I'm good on that. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott. 
The U.S. Department of Justice is seeking help from the courts to obtain documents pertaining to and visits to Georgia Department of Corrections. Now, a petition was filed back on March 28th in the U.S. District Court right here in Atlanta. The DOJ wants to investigate the crimes, including murders, that have taken place inside Georgia's prisons. Now, according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, since the beginning of 2020, at least 53 Georgian inmates have been homicide victims. Also, according to the AJC, that is more than double the total of 21 for 2018 and 2019. On March 20th of 2020, Carrington Fry was stabbed by another inmate and died inside Macon State Prison. Now, back on October 21st of 2021, Jennifer Bradley and I had a conversation about her son, Carrington. So, Carrington, uh, we moved here 10 years ago from Arkansas. We didn't have any family here. Um, moved Carrington away from his, you know, dad, and that was really hard on him, the transition. Uh, he was a football star, Rose. He uh, was a basketball star, excelled in pretty much everything he did, scored really higher than national standards on standardized testing, um, very loving kid, grew up in a loving home, made some you know unfavorable choices in his life, and that's kind of what landed him in the Georgia Department of Corrections, mm-hmm. but overall a, a good kid. Now, for Jennifer Bradley, there's still a lot of unanswered questions surrounding Carrington's death, and she joins me now in the studio. Ms. Bradley, welcome back. Good to see you. Thank you, Ms. Rose. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Let's back up a little bit for our listeners not familiar with this story because I do think it's important. Carrington was serving time for his involvement in, in an altercation with another group of young boys. Now, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and other outlets reported that those group of boys were gangs, but Carrington was not involved in a gang, but he was with this group of boys that had some type of something with this with this gang. Yes, ma'am. Not to my knowledge that he was involved in a gang. Those group of boys, that actually started, as silly as it sounds, they were rapping. Carrington was in his rap group. They were in his rap group. Somebody says something. Things kind of spiraled out of control had been in several altercations with those group of boys at the time um, that Carrington committed the crime that landed him in prison. It wasn't a random act of violence. Actually fighting that day, Carrington went to the car and shot a gun from the car after the fight. Yeah, Afterwards, he realized that it was the wrong decision, but and we couldn't undo it. So he was given 20 years with his parole time. The person that was shot was shot in the foot or Shot ankle. in the foot. Nobody died. Nobody nearly died nor quality of life was altered. It was his first offense? Yes. And he was given 20 years? With his parole time, yes, ma'am, 20 years. Um, What was the time that he he had to serve, though, before parole? So he served two years in the county jail before actually going to court. They they said that he would be given eight, two off for his um, time served in the county jail, and then for him to serve six. How old was Carrington when he was sentenced? He was 17? He was 17 when he was charged, Mm -hmm. but when he went to court, he was uh, right at 19. You recall the day that you saw that he was going to be going to serve his full time and the rest of the remainder of his full time in in, in prison? That, you know, that time frame was one of the worst uh, periods of my life outside of having to bury him. Felt really ostracized, me and him both, not only by the judge and the prosecutor, but our attorney as well. You told me last time that you felt like he did not have adequate representation. I do. I feel like the attorney we had did not 
get to know him. He wasn't prepared. Was he it a public defender? No, it was not. Mm-hmm. I paid him my hard-earned money. Um, we felt kind of pushed into a plea deal. That was my next question. Carrington took a plea deal. He never went to trial. He never went to trial. Did you want him to go to trial? <sighs> yes and no. I wanted him to go to trial, but in the event that he told us that this is the best he's going to get, he's going to go away for a long time if we don't take the plea deal. The judge has said, if you don't take the plea deal, uh, you're going to court within a week. He wasn't prepared. Um, So yes and no. We felt kind of bullied into that plea deal. And it was hard for me to make that decision because I wasn't making a decision for my life. I was making it for my young son. How many times did you visit him? He was at Macon State, correct? Macon State Prison. I visited him every time I got a chance. If I was off, uh, you know, I'm a single mother, so I have to work. So any weekend that I was off, I was at that prison. How was, how was Carrington coping? Overall, like I said, you know, many times before, overall, Carrington was a strong kid, very strong. He was really careful not to show me worry for the sake of me, but there were often times when things were bubbling beneath his surface that I knew was bothering him. He never said anything? Yes, sometimes he did. Uh, He talked about being placed in a cell with a pro boxer and that kind of ending uh, bad, but not as bad as it could have been. Um, talked about hearing uh, somebody scream one time and later finding out that the kid had been raped. He talked about being so cold one winter, and this was actually the winter that he was, uh, right before he was killed, was so cold he said he had to run his hot water all night and get warm from the steam. He talked about absent and delayed medical calls, uh, needing antibiotics, feeling weak, did he have any altercations in prison? He did. He had some altercations. Not many, but he did have some altercations. And I think that's probably inevitable when you're young. You know, you're around so many uh, older people, mm-hmm. a lot more crimes. You're trying to establish yourself and not be viewed as this weak kid that you can be taken advantage of. He did take advantage of some some courses, some educational courses that were offered to him? He did. He took anger management uh, and some other courses. He also got his uh, GED in prison and graduated salutatorian of his class. You talked to him about that too. Yes. I remember you telling me. Yes. Very smart kid. Wasn't surprised. Uh, We were invited to the graduation and there was another kid who won valedictorian. But I know my child. I knew that he could have done it. Like, what happened? He said, well, I purposely didn't finish a test. I don't want to be up there speaking in front of those people. Very smart kid, always smart. Ms. Bradley, did you all try to seek some other type of legal recourse and either having the sentence uh, reduced or once that was given, once that sentence was handed, was that it for you all? Did you try to get any other legal recourse here? Yes, ma'am, I did. I spoke to two other attorneys. Um, one, I actually went in to the office and consulted with. And he said that uh, we will have to go before that same judge. He said, because it gives them a chance to rewrite the wrong. He's like, but he would have to agree that it was wrong. He says, so kind of, you know, honestly speaking, it's it's hard to sometimes overturn that type of stuff. 
Um, what about the other young men that were involved in that altercation? Were they found guilty of anything? Were they charged? And were they found guilty? Carrington counterpressed charges, and they went to jail for a little time, but not long. They had really, really long rap sheets, which surprised me. Uh, they wanted to drop the charges, though, but our attorney said the prosecutor wouldn't allow it. The, the, the young men in the other group didn't want any charges, and no. that's that's kind of a that's kind of a code. It's kind of a street code. Uh, let's be really clear that you know we've handled it supposedly, right? They wanted to drop the charges. And I want to be very clear: this was Carrington's only offense as an adult. Yes. Okay. But he had little misdemeanors where he got into a fight when he was like fifteen or sixteen. But that didn't come into play. Sure. Let me add that. March twentieth. Of 2020, Jennifer. Yes. Can you take me through that day? Yes. So, um, Carrington was just about to get out of prison a few months. In a few months. Um, so his sentence was, he, cause, and I think listeners probably wonder, when, what year did he go in? He went into prison around 2019, but he was arrested in 2017. Okay. So he was going to be released early. Well, they told no, that was like six and a half. They said for him to serve six. Okay. And his tentative parole month was 2021. But the parole department uh, written to me and my older son that he had earned 10 credits where he would get 30 days off for each credit. So we took 10 months off. And when we took the 10 months off, that placed his parole the summer of 2020 the summer yes um and march 20th was that day earlier was a typical day you know COVID has started to descend mm-hmm. um had talked to carrington maybe a week and a half prior to that we typically talk every day and uh you talk to him every day every day two and three times a day so it was alarming that i hadn't heard from him uh, and I called the prison, and she was saying something like he didn't want to come out of isolation. I later found out that was a lie, that they had a murder. That's why I hadn't heard from them. They locked down the prison that week prior to Carrington being killed because mm-hmm. there was a murder. So March 20th, I'm laying in my bed. It was around 9.04 uh, p.m. I received a call from one of my nieces who's in Atlanta. And I hit reject because I was on the phone with somebody else. And then she called right back. So I'm like, you know, let me take this. She's calling back. So when I switched over, her voice was breaking. And she said, I got a call from Carrington's friend. He's on the other end. He got something to tell you. I immediately started screaming, where is my son? Because nobody should be calling me from the prison unless it's him. So I knew something was wrong. My spirit was really disturbed. So that's when he said, Miss Bradley, Sip got stabbed. Sip. That was, and Sip is Carrington's nickname. Yes, that's Carrington's nickname all his life. He said, uh, call up to the prison and check on your son. They said he was dead. Whew. So another inmate had contacted a family member. Yes. And that family member called you. But yes. you hadn't heard anything from prison officials. I hadn't heard anything from the prison officials. And I finally made it to my older son's room, and he was trying to tell me that maybe it was a rumor. But I knew, as a mother, I knew that I would never see my son again. So I actually dialed the prison. 
they stalled. They put me on hold, told me to call back. I called back again, and then they were stalling. And she was like, who told you that? You know, where did you find she that information? Being she being the, um, the person who answered the phone at the prison. I guess the secretary or whoever mm-hmm. that was. Uh, so they put me on hold, and then finally the warden got on, and he said, I'm sorry, you know, I hate to make these types of uh, calls. And I said, where's my son? He said, he's at the morgue. What time was this? This was around 9.27, 9.30. And we should note for our listeners, we have tried to contact Georgia Department of Corrections. Even the first time you were on this program, we did not hear back from them. We still continue to not seek correspondence, so or get correspondence from them. So just wanted to put that out there. So the warden told you that he was at the morgue. Did he go into any details about anything else? He said he could not go into any details because there was a pending investigation. Um, Because I asked him, like, what had happened. He said he couldn't tell me. I asked him about Karenson's personal belongings. I even mentioned that I could drive there, you know, to get him. I asked, was he at a hospital? You know, he said he couldn't tell me anything. He did say that his personal belongings were being held for investigative purposes. And I said, well, what about the belongings in his cell? I understand that maybe what was on his person would be held. And he said, everything's being held. So that's what he said. And he didn't give me any further information. And that was the conversation for the next few months. And then all of a sudden, maybe three or four months down the line, it went from we can no longer locate your son's personal belongings. Since our last conversation, there has been, I guess, an indictment of the, the inmate that stabbed Carrington. Do we know what the circumstances regarding that? Do you... there, there has been an indictment. Um, what I was told, it was over some petty thievery that the other guy was doing. And Carrington made a peace offering or something for him to remove himself from the dorm. At that point, I guess he left and uh, supposedly had left, but he never left. He came back with a knife. The other inmate? Yes. And stabbed him? Mm-hmm. And stabbed him, and they said Carrington was trying to get away, running for his life. Um, but he didn't stand a chance that day, from what I've been told from certain staff members, because of the series of events that took place in the prison that was preventable. What do you mean? Well, uh, they were so short-staffed. There was one uh, correctional officer overseeing 188 inmates. On this particular shift? On this particular shift of two dorms. You were told that by staff? Staff and inmates. And inmates. One Uh, for 188? Yes, one female officer. She was in a booth. She never stepped out of her booth. Rather, she panicked. Rather, she felt outnumbered. I don't know. She never stepped out of her booth. Uh, to do CPR or anything. The other inmate uh, that was with him talked her into allowing him to go to go into the sally port, which is a space in between two doors. Mm-hmm. Um, he laid back there struggling for 30, 40 minutes. Um, staff did not get there in time. A staff member, and I can't go into that aspect of it for legal reasons, but staff member called me and told me why it took them so long to get to him. And she said that she don't know the exact time, but she said it was an extended period of time. She said to Ms. Bradley, I'd never reach out to people. She said, but in with him, the type of person that he was, 
the circumstances, I felt compelled to tell you that he was doomed. Those were exact words. He was doomed to die that day with a series of preventable events. She said they were preventable. She said, but it just so happened on the, that day that he died on that day. When did you see Carrington's body again? Was it when you were preparing for his funeral? It was when I had him flown back from um, Georgia here because I couldn't see him that day. I wanted to see him with the, you know, the coroner and all of that, but they wouldn't allow me. His body went to the GBI, and they said they had to do a double autopsy on him. He bled to death? I don't know. I haven't received this autopsy report. I've written him numerous times. They said that they can't release that until after the trial has been done and the patient has been convicted or not convicted, whatever, you know, the outcome of the trial. You also, you told us you wrote to Governor Brian Kemp for help? I've written to Governor Brian Kemp twice, um, explaining to him about the situation, ways to prevent this from happening again. I've, you know, wrote him about not receiving Carrington's belongings. I've never received any type of response from his office. So it doesn't surprise you when the Department of Justice is trying to get information and because they're doing an investigation into Georgia's correctional facilities for homicides. It just doesn't surprise you that, that they are, through their allegations, are being met with resistance. It, it doesn't. It doesn't surprise me, being that, you know, you won't have a conversation, at least a conversation with a grieving mother whose son has lost his life in one of your prisons. But I must admit that it's disheartening. They're trying to come in and they're trying to come up with ways to prevent this from happening, to revamp this system, and you're stopping them from doing so? Like, what benefit or what reason can you give to justify stopping them from going in there? You are seeking some type of, I don't know what you can share, but you are seeking some type of legal Yes, ma'am. Action? I am. What do you want? I want them to produce. I want to see some changes made in the prison system. There's no way that I should have received that call that night from another inmate or at all. These are places, prisons are places that we send people to be reformed and rehabilitated. There's no restitution or rehabilitation in that type of environment. They may, you may as well let, turn them loose and put them out on the street. There's no justice in that. Were you able to get any of Carrington's belongings at all? No, I did call the, I found out what um, college went to the school, to the prison and, and delivered the education to them and I got a copy there, but I never got the original. And I know it's different because I looked at his picture and compared it. It's a, it's, you just it's want the, the original? because that, That's the one he held? That's the one he held. That's the one he had with him. You have a, a necklace of his as well? Two necklaces. Uh, they were on him when he was murdered. The funeral home gave me that and one of them still had, is stained with his blood. I won't ever wash it away. Call it weird or whatever, but it's all I have of them. Have you worked with, I know we spoke with, I believe, someone for the Southern Center for Human Rights. I think we had a guest on. But have you been working with any groups or advocacy groups? Um, have you been contacted by any other inmates 
about the conditions? Yes, I'm constantly in contact uh, with other inmates. I have been working with other advocacy groups as well. I still deal with the Southern Center. They've been great. Um, National Incarceration Association and Kate Bosch are great. Also, uh, and Kate has been a guest on this program before. Yes, Tasha Mills, who's doing a documentary about the prison system, uh, Don Arthur, and so other people. Uh, Portia Miller, I think she's an advocate too. Mm -hmm. So other people that I've kind of surrounded myself with on this journey. This journey that you've been talking about and we've been talking with you for since 2020, since 2021, I guess. How have you and your family been trying to hold up in all of this? Okay, overall. We have moments every day. My oldest son has nightmares. He's recently started seeing a psychiatrist. Um, A lot of depressive days for him. You know, as a mother, uh, to bear one of your children is the worst thing that you possibly can go through, but I also have other children who need me. Carrington need me to be his voice. If he was here, he'd tell you that I I would be doing just what I'm doing. So that's what keeps me going, Miss Rose. Being able to talk about him amplify his voice through me that's really what that's really what keeps me going Jennifer Bradley the mother of Carrington Fry we will continue to follow the story we are actively trying to get more information from Georgia's Department of Corrections. Ms. Bradley, we're very sorry for your loss. Thank Thank you for coming in and continuing to share the story. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott. You may recall last week on the program, there was a conversation about writing one's courage journey. Our guest was Candace Doby, and we talked about keeping journals. Well, for distinguished Pulitzer Award-winning author and activist Alice Walker, perhaps it is no surprise personal journals have been a part of her life for so long. Now, we've all read her novels, poetry, essays, short stories, and children's books, And now a revealing book looks into her life as she wrote it. Gathering Blossoms Under Fire, the Journals of Alice Walker, 1965 to 2000. And it was edited by the late Valerie Boyd, author, journalist, and writing professor at the University of Georgia. And many of you know, a literary contributor to WABE and a personal friend. Well, this week, Alice Walker will be in conversation with someone else we all know oh so well, a fellow author, playwright, activist, Pearl Clegg. She sometimes emails me when I do good on radio, and I just love that. But the virtual event is presented by Karis Bookstore and the Auburn Avenue Research Library on African-American culture and history. But before that, I got her. We're joined by Alice Walker from the West Coast, making this our third conversation. As always, it's a pleasure Miss Alice Walker, thank you for taking the time. Good to see you again. I'm delighted to be here with you. You know, in our past conversations, we've always talked about our hair. 
You know, I had you had locks for some time and I still have mine. And there's this journal entry in the book that I just love. And I'm not going to give too much away, but I have I have to recite this. January 25th, 1979. The jury curl was a bus, but I like my barber stylist. She thinks about things and writes. I'm ready to plant roses, parsley, basil. Oh, spring is coming or I miss my grass. And out here, if spring starts in January, what a long spring it must be. I am happy. I am. It was yeah. that it was those three words. I am happy for mm. me because you're happy when you write. Well, whether I'm weeping as I'm writing, I'm still happy. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Absolutely. And that entry I read was from the nature of this flower is to bloom. This is 500 pages of entries from 60 plus journals, which you place in the loving care of our mutual friend and your fellow creative, the late Valerie Boyd. This was in 2007 when you gave her these journals. Had you always considered publishing your journals? Well, I think so, because I was under the influence of Anais Nin, who was a great journalist uh, herself, a diarist. And I learned how much you can learn from keeping a journal about yourself and how liberating it can be, you know, to discover you don't have to keep repeating your old mistakes because you can go back and recognize them. You still journal? Oh, yes. I love it. I think it's wonderful. How much independence did Valerie have in in editing this? You gave her these journals. You said, have at it. Did you select some that you did not want to be published? She took the whole thing, and together we decided that, you know, nobody wanted to read a thousand-page book, and it was too heavy to carry around. Uh, so together we made some decisions, but I trusted her completely. She was, she was just entirely trustworthy, and I'm very happy with what she chose, you know, finally, and how it hangs together, and I just wish she were here with us to enjoy it. We were going to be you know, strolling down the yellow brick road together. But, you know, it's not happening. She told me as she was working on this, she would never reveal too much, but she would just say, make sure you get me and Alice on when this comes out. And I would say, of course. And I would, <laughs> being a journalist, Miss Walker, I would say, can you tell me? She's like, no, I can't tell you that, Rose. Uh-huh. <laughs> you you yeah. know me. But I want to talk about writing for a moment because, and I shared this in an interview that I did with someone about Valerie and what she would tell me about writing that Rose, I, you have to be willing, how vulnerable do you want to be in all of this? Mm. And mm. vulnerability in our journals reveals all of that. Mm-hmm. And I hope this isn't a silly question. Did you have any concerns about your vulnerability that folks would see in these journals? Of course, people always see your vulnerabilities, whether you have them or not. That's what you have to understand about folks. So you might as well just live your life. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But I it's, mean, it's hard, Miss Walker, when you want to put, it's okay because when you're journaling, you're, you're writing to yourself. You know that, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so for some of us, maybe it's hard. To no, even... no, no. Of course it's hard. But, but you know, but that's what life is. is. It's, it's hard and then you get over it. But the thing to remember is that in a way there's only one self. And that's the, the, the whole self of everyone. I mean, we're not that different. We think we are, but in so many ways we're not. That is why it's possible to teach people things because you're teaching out of yourself 
and it's going into what seems like a completely different self, but obviously it's not because they understand, right? Mm -hmm. And that is what will happen with this journal. People will see so much of themselves that they'll forget about me. I mean, you know, it'll be more like, oh, here is a mirror I can use. As I'm reading the book and and I'm reading from 20-something-year-old Alice Walker, and you're right, there are some mirrored reflections I could see. And then there were some that I have to keep in mind because of that time, that space where you were. And mm-hmm. and then as I'm reading on, and, I, and to be fair, I'm, I haven't finished the book. I, I don't want to be one of those journalists that claim they read the whole book and they didn't. But then mm-hmm. I'm getting to, I'm up to the 1980s right now. What I want listeners to understand, too, is early in the book, Valerie tells the reader that throughout the years, Alice Walker would use her journals as a place to write first drafts of poems, short stories, and parts of novels. So she's letting the reader know that what you're embarking upon when you read about Alice Walker in her 20s or 30s, it makes sense. And you understand when you get further in the book, it's all connected. Your writings and your life are intertwined. That should shock no one. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. You know, because, I mean, I, I exist. I mean, and what else do I have but myself, really, you know? Uh, and so, you know, the creativity is true, is a miracle. So in a way, you don't know where a lot of it comes from. But it has chosen you as the conduit. And so there is a connection right there. She gives the reader footnotes, just enough background or insight so they can understand some of these entries. When you go back and you read these entries, or do you? I should ask that first and not just assume that you do. Do you go often go back and reread your entries from these journals from 1965 or even further? Not really, no. Uh, you know, there's, I'm still writing. I have a blog I write on and publish, you know, very often. Uh, so I'm not so much concerned with the things that are already done. Uh, I'm very much concerned with current political realities like Ukraine, for instance. Um, but, you know, I, I relate to it. And what I like about, about any journal is that you can watch yourself develop and you can also, um, you know, really get to know your fears, you know, and what's holding you back. What's keeping you silent when you really know you need to speak? What is that? And in journaling, you can find out because there's nobody judging you. It's just you and your, your journal. And you just go through the, you know, the weeks and the months and sometimes the years and dig it out. Find out what's holding you down. I feel like I'm getting a master class here. Um, Thank you. No, I mean that. Mm-hmm. Listeners should know that you have way more journals and entries. Will we get to read perhaps another volume? Cause- well, I don't know because Valerie is gone and... I am not so happy that she had to leave um, because I trusted her so completely. Um, But yeah, I have to say, I, you know, I have never stopped journaling. I have tons of journals that have never been transcribed. Um, It's a way to make sense of the world and our relationship with it. Uh, And it's also assuming my, uh, my, my position here as an elder in our community where we need to know certain things without a lot of varnish. And, uh, and we need to be able to understand that, you know, women have always, men and women, but in this case, women have always found a way to be happy that it's not impossible, you know, and that you don't have to settle for bad choices. I mean, all kinds of things. 
And you can see that if you keep a journal in your own life, you can see, oh, I didn't have to do that. I can do something else. What age did you start journaling? Uh, I think uh, just before I went to the Soviet Union when I was 17, maybe 18. You still have those? Uh, oh, of course. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, the, one, the first journal was given to me by a friend at Spelman uh, because she knew I was going away. You know, I was this little country girl and I was going out of the country, for, the, for out of the U.S. for the first time. And she wanted me to jot down what I saw. I saw a lot of really cute people. <laughs> <laughs> I learned to ride a motorcycle. <laughs> you over there on a motorcycle looking at cute people. Uh-huh. <laughs> Why travel if you can't do some of that? Absolutely. How great is it that you're going to be in conversation with your good friend Pearl Clegg as well? I'm looking forward to it. I love Pearl. Yeah, I do too. I know. We all do. The first conversation we had when Emery had some of your manuscripts and I think some of your other literary works, and we talked about the late Rudolph Bird. You have had some amazing partnerships and relationships mm. with people along the way. Mm. Yeah. Oh, I'm just doing that sounding like that because of Rudolph. Yeah. What an amazing, beautiful man. Mm. Oh, and what a sharp dresser. Yeah. Oh, he was so great. Yeah, we, we, we you know, but actually uh, Beverly and Valerie and I, you know, we, we held on. I mean, we were right there. We were, we were just right there with Rudolph. Yeah. Uh, and, and until the end, and it, and it was, um, you know, such a joy to be able to stand with him and to love him. You know, I often ask people about this L word called legacy, and I've been told on many occasions, Rose, stop asking people about their legacy. As a former politician told me, Rose, if people worry about their legacy, they don't have one. And I know you don't worry about your legacy, but... You have a legacy, and whether it's with this book or any of the, the wonderful projects that you have gifted us with. But throughout all this, and I don't think I've ever asked you this, Miss Walker, so bear with me. What did you want folks to get out of all your literary offerings? To be free. To be free. I mean, to just be free. This is probably the only time we'll be on this planet as humans. Uh, <laughs> but you don't, you never know. Um, but it's, it's, it's all kind of limited from that perspective. So the least we can do, and given our unique heritage of struggle to be free, be free, be yourself. And I see that happening more and more. I mean, it's such a lovely thing. Um, and I, I'm just, that's what I want, you know, be free to love, be free to travel, be free to think, be free to speak. And of course, people will throw things at you. They've always done that. And they always will. But the joy of our gift, exercising our gift, is to be free. And when we're free in our being, in every aspect, the ancestors just having a great time thinking about us, you know, and saying, oh, yeah, wow, all that struggle, all that suffering was not for nothing. They didn't all end up with a Jerry curl. <laughs> you know, that intro just... It was a bust, but I had to try it because I'm free, right? I mean, you know, yeah. you, the thing is you try all kinds of things and that's, that's part of what makes life so, which is riveting, you know, as a subject of, of contemplation, life itself. 
that you try different things and see see what fits and what doesn't, but don't sit back because someone tells you, oh, if you do that, you're going to go to hell. Well, you know, you're already in hell, mm. you know. I want to honor my time. I want to be fair, but I could go on. <laughs> I, I don't want your folks mad at me. <sighs> Gathering oh. Blossoms Under Fire, the journals of Alice Walker, 1965 to 2000, edited by the late Valerie Boyd. Miss Walker will be in conversation virtually. Don't y'all show up at the bookstore presented by Karis Books because they will. They'll be like, we're Alice and Pearl. They're not here. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I need folks to listen. Uh, Miss Walker will be in conversation virtually presented by Karis Bookstore and the Auburn Avenue Research Library on African-American culture and history. That's coming up this Wednesday. We'll have links to where folks can uh, sign up and register. Alice Walker, as always, it is a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. I didn't get the chance to walk up to you and wish you a happy 75th when you were down in Eatonton three years ago. I was there. I couldn't get to you. I was there. I was filming a documentary. Folks were dancing with you. You were out there dancing. I was like, I'm just going to go work the room over here. I talked to Margaret Avery. I was over there in the corner with her. And I was, you know what? I'm just going to over there boogieing. I'm just going to stay over in the corner. It was fun. It was. It was Thank lovely. Thank you, Ms. Walker. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. And again, Alice Walker will be in conversation this Wednesday, virtually, with Pearl Click, courtesy of the fine folks over at Karis Bookstore and the Auburn Avenue Research Library. That's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Razel, our in- engineer is Kevin Rinker. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. And send me an email, as y'all have been doing, rose at wabe.org. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.